So Psalm 21. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and you have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. Our next reading is from the book of Mark. Um, we're kind of jumping, uh, skipping out a few verses in the middle. Um, this is talking about Jesus as he comes to his crucifixion. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. Um, did you catch that? That's the psalm that we just read, sung at the coronation, King Charles's coronation. Hello, my name's Campbell, if you haven't met me. If you have met me, I'm still Campbell. 
And yeah, as Kirsten said, we're going through different genres of psalms. And we've come to a genre that perhaps you're not so familiar with, the genre of royal psalms. And yeah, if you um, were listening to it being sung at the coronation, uh, as you heard it read, you would probably appreciate why it's appropriate to sing uh, this at coronations. Who, who actually watched the coronation? Yeah, yes, I stayed up and watched it. Um, it was quite fun, wasn't it? Uh, all um, like the music, the uniforms, the jewels, all the ritual, the Brits really do put on a show. But I wonder, um, did you have a sort of faint feeling, or perhaps not so faint feeling of a very comic undercurrent to it all? I mean, the, the deep seriousness of it all, the, the, the fact there was a Byzantine chant, that there was a government minister parading around with a sword, the fact that the king had to swap crowns because the one he was crowned with can't leave the abbey because it's a holy relic. It was all a bit strange as well as majestic. I think the strangeness of the coronation reflects a sort of strangeness of the royal psalms, or at least, yeah, an unfamiliarity. It's, they are things that are not relatable to us. They're about stuff that's not part of our daily lives. So, so what do we make of these songs for the king? Now that's what we're going to think about today. Psalm 21 is um, a pretty typical royal psalm, uh, so it's um, fairly unrelatable. Uh, and so if we can learn to hear what God's saying through Psalm 21, I think we'll be uh, pretty well set up to hear God's voice in all of the royal psalms. Uh, so I have three points, as usual. It was suggested to me um, to make available my outline. That might be helpful. So there's a QR code. I think it will work. If you want, uh, you're welcome to try uh, and... Uh, Look at that and follow along. Otherwise, there are slides. So we're going to uh, first lean into the difficulty of uh, the Royal Psalms and look at two ways that uh, they can trip us up. Then we'll look at two uh, different narratives in the Psalms. And then finally, a couple of impl implications for how we live our lives. So royal hazards, royal stories, and royal lives. So by royal hazards, I mean two unhelpful responses to the royal psalms. The first of these responses is rejection. I mean, this can take the form of going, this is an ancient song celebrating a long dead king. This is just not relevant. Even kingship is an anachronism, a relic of a past we have outgrown. Or it's a suspicion of power. It sees all rulers as embodying harmful power structures, hierarchy, privilege, exploitation. Of course, this sort of critique is not new. 
an ancient critic of kings said, this is what the king will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will make weapons of war. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. You will become his slaves. Now, of course, that critic was the prophet Samuel. When in 1 Samuel 8, he was warning the Israelites of the evils that will come from having a king. Samuel's mention there of weapons of war raises another potential reason to reject psalms like this and to reject kings. A major preoccupation of rulers is to make war. And this psalm seems to endorse it, to celebrate it. The second half of the psalm, if you'll notice, the first half is um, to God, thanking, thanking God. The second half then is talking, addressing the king and saying this is what the king will do. This is the victory, the victories that, uh, that God will give you, the king. So the heck, second half of this psalm is particularly problematic. It's full of violent imagery. It's God destroying the king's enemies through a blazing furnace, swallowing up them in his wrath, shooting them down with bows. When we teach kids that violence doesn't pay, and then the the horrific evil of war is... uh, We don't have to look far to see that these evils only turn on the news and see what's happening in Ukraine and Gaza. Jesus, after all, calls peacemakers blessed and calls on us not to repay violence with violence, but to love our enemies. But perhaps you think this is naive. I mean, we need to be realistic. There are bad actors in the world. People do seek to harm us and to harm other people. We need strong rulers to protect us and to bring order. If if necessary, by force. So the Bible recognises a need for strong government. We can understand the Israelites' request for a king if we go back and read about the escalating chaos in the book of Judges. Back then, the lack of strong government left Israel open to threats from abroad, moral decay and civil strife. And it culminates with idolatry, sexual violence, and civil war. While we heard Samuel warning of the evils of having a king, Judges warns of the evils of not having a king. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So the royal psalms focused on kinship, on authority, is not something that can be rejected out of hand. So this leads to the second unhelpful response, appropriation. This approach, recognizing that rejecting power is problematic, that that can lead to evils, recognizing that um, rejecting uh, authority leaves 
power open to be seized by the ungodly. Evil prospers when good men do nothing. Even a, a total rejection of, of violence and war, terrible as they are, can lead to injustice. Is it not right for Israel to defend itself? Would it not be wrong for Hamas to go unpunished for their atrocities? So far, yeah, this, this is good, this is true. Romans 13 reminds us that authority is given by God for good purposes. But where appropriation goes wrong is when it enlists God to justify seeking, holding, and defending power for our own purposes. When we misuse the authority he's given us for our own ends, when we co-opt God to legitimize uh, a regime and all their actions. Appropriation of royal psalms in this way is invoking them in support of our preferred leader, whoever that may be. Particularly one unapologetic about claiming God's favor and willing to visit God's wrath on those who would do us harm. It's the attitude, God is on our side, may our enemies be damned. Such appropriation can lead to frankly absurd things like the church blessing nuclear warheads as happens in one country. Such a sort of baptism of destructive power might strike you as quite obscene, but, but strength is attractive. It's attractive because well, power enables us to get what, what we want. It enables us to exert control. The, the ability to take what we want, to make others do what we want, well, who, would, who wouldn't want that? That's quite seductive. But embracing this sort of self-centered power comes with harms. It, it makes people more impulsive and less able to understand other people's concerns. It can lead to things like while launching a poorly thought out invasion. Or regarding people who can't find work as work shy. Or even just responding to someone's distress with irritation because they're intruding on your own peace. So rejection and appropriation are the two extremes of how we can respond to this psalm, two extremes of how we can respond to authority. And in reality, of course, we all have a mix of, of, the, of both attitudes, perhaps tending more to one than the other. I wonder if you are more suspicious of power than those who wield it. Or are you more attracted to authority than those who possess it? Um, one example, how did you feel about the COVID measures? Were you on team I stand with Dan or team dictator Dan? What was your uh, um, response to that use of authority to control how we lived? How we relate to those in power and how we use power ourselves uh, is often shaped 
by those who have power over us. Being citizens of a democracy, of course, is very different from being subjects of a king. The relationship of a manager and an employee is different from that of a master and a slave. More to the point, the character of those in authority affects how we relate to them. The experience of working under a micromanager is quite different from working under a laid-back, hands-off boss. And that's different, again, from a more collaborative leader. Of course, while these are different experiences, how we respond, how we use the authority that God's given us, well, that needs to remain consistently God-honoring. So how do we honour those in authority over us? How, how do we honour a bad boss, corrupt politicians, interfering parents, or for that matter, a regime that may be persecuting us? So with all these questions in mind, let's actually now turn to the psalm and look at the royal stories that it tells us about those in authority. Psalm 21 is a psalm of David. David, of course, was the paradigmatic king of God's people. Why? Because as verse 7 tells us, he trusted in the Lord. He knew that his authority was from God. The Lord was king over all. And he had to submit to the Lord even as king himself. We see this, uh, for example, when David was on the run from Saul and refused to harm him because Saul was still the anointed king. And instead, David waited for the crown to come to him in time. Uh, to help see this royal story a bit more uh, clearly, I think it, it would be useful if I actually looked not just at this one psalm, but uh, a sequence, the sequence of psalms that Psalm 21 is in. I don't know if you know, but the book of Psalms is arranged into five separate books. Each book has a different uh, major theme. Um, psalm 21 comes within book one. The, the main theme of book one is opposition. Opposition to God's people, opposition to God's anointed king. So let's start with the psalm before it. Psalm 21 and Psalm 20 uh, pairs. You'll see that if you go and read them, they're very closely related. So looking at Psalm 20, which is another royal psalm, and we find it's a prayer expressing trust in God, asking God to come to the king's aid. May the Lord answer you in your distress. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Lord, give victory to the king. And that leads to the psalm we're reading today, Psalm 21, which is a, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. God has answered the prayers in Psalm 20. He has given the king victory. He has established the king's rule. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. 
But then comes along Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? After victory, after all God's done, defeat. And the second half of David's reign had many crises when it appeared that David, like Saul before him, had lost God's favour. Uh, this psalm, where, when it talks about all who see me mock me, brings to mind when Shimei cursed David as he fled from Jerusalem from his own son who had rebelled against him. Yet despite apparent abandonment by God, David reaffirms his trust in the Lord in this psalm. Pleading for intervention, you are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And Psalm 22 finishes with verse upon verse of praise. This attitude of confident, dependent trust continues into Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then the psalm concludes in certain hope of David receiving a victory celebration and restoration in Jerusalem. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you see how these psalms have been arranged to tell a royal story. It's been arranged reflecting on the story of David. Moving from petition, thanksgiving, lament, to trust. It's depicting a king who depends on the Lord no matter what life throws at him, who praises God not just for granting victory, but for being with him even amid defeat. Of course, the Psalms are not just about David. And this is a royal story, not just about an ancient king who despite the formulaic references in the Psalms to living forever and ever, was long dead by the time this collection was put together. Ultimately, the Psalms tells a deeper royal story that looks forward to another king, the coming Messiah or Christ. We find the first royal psalm right at the start of the book Psalm of, of Psalms, Psalm 2. And that frames and informs how we read the Psalms as the story of Christ the King, a future anointed one, God's own son, whom God will give the nations as his inheritance. This figure of the King anticipates the Christ, foretelling his story of petition, thanksgiving, lament, and trust. It's a royal story of a king who is opposed, who is rejected, who will pray to God in his distress, yet who will suffer, who will still pass through the valley of the shadow of death, apparently abandoned by God. Yet, of course, this king will trust God through all his suffering, even when he feels that God has forsaken him, he will be sure of the unfailing love of the Most High. 
And it will be through his obedient faithfulness, through his suffering, that God gives victory. And then, of course, this king is God himself. The final psalm in this sequence, Psalm 24, announces the arrival of the king of glory in Jerusalem. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord Almighty. Jesus claimed to be this king, to be God made human, coming to Jerusalem to suffer and die. We heard the passage from Mark of his suffering, his crucifixion. Yet, when the soldiers mocked him, that was, in fact, his coronation, his public revelation uh, to the world as Christ, the King of glory, whose crown was not of pure gold, but of thorns. He is the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, the king whose own people mocked as he himself cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But of course, God did not abandon him even in this darkest of valleys. He raised him to new life, the ultimate victory, vindicating Jesus as the Lord's anointed. This is Jesus' royal story. His obedient sufferings are his qualifications to rule. His resurrection proof of his royal claims. And so it's a story that turns upside down worldly ideas of power and authority. To those who are attracted to authority and hierarchy, it says, the great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. True power is not violence, not domination, but sacrificial self-giving. To those suspicious of authority, it says, well, Christ, the king, did not come to uh, be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. True power builds up, sets free, and brings life. So what what does that mean for our lives? If Jesus is not just our saviour, but our Lord, he is the king who uses his power to serve, what does that mean for us? Well, first it shows us and empowers us to live royal lives like his. As his subjects, we are to serve him, serve his kingdom, but not serve it uh, in with the strength of the world, but serve him in the way that he serves us. Jesus going to the cross shows that true power comes not from strength alone, but when authority is combined with vulnerability. The the writer Andy Crouch, reflecting on Jesus' uh, way of using power, put it like this. Where there is only authority, we get exploitation. Where there is only vulnerability, suffering. And where there is neither, withdrawal. Only where there is both authority 
and vulnerability can we get flourishing? So you can see there's, he has a diagram. Come up in, yeah, there it is. So you can see authority up the top and vulnerability over this side. We'll go around briefly looking uh, at all, all four squares. So authority without vulnerability is the capacity to act without any meaningful risk. There's no, no meaningful loss. Authority without vulnerability is the smart guy who can never be wrong. It's the mother who works tirelessly to organize the family, keep them running. But everything must work how she says, and she cannot, cannot accept help. It's the leader who expects loyalty and gives none. The entrepreneur who seeks to maximize profit instead of focusing on providing a quality service. It's the worker who does shoddy work, knowing that no one is checking up on him. Authority without vulnerability, it's, it's, just, it's seductive. It says, we can take without having to give. We should attack when we feel threatened. It's a coping mechanism for life's unpredictability and a compensation mechanism for our own insecurities. On the other hand, vulnerability without authority is a exposure to risk without any meaningful capacity to act. Vulnerability without authority is how most of us actually interact with you know, those big organizations that, that dictate so much of how we live our lives, the government, big companies. We have to do what they say if we want to use their services or just exist in this world, and we can't really change what they do. We just have to, you know, lump it alike. It's also the frustration of not being seen of having our efforts, our needs, our hopes ignored. That's not actually the worst state, though. The worst state is having no, no authority, no vulnerability. This withdrawal can be, well, when someone is so hurt, so bruised, that they shut down emotionally. But it's also chasing cheap substitutes instead of things that lead for flourishing. Things that require little effort and have little risk. It's uh, obsessing over celebs and influences instead of investing in relationships. It's porn instead of intimacy with real people. Or the latest thing, AI relationships. It's all the ways we seek comfort uh, instead of facing up to unpleasant realities. But when we take risks with our capacity to act, when we combine our authority to, to act with our vulnerability, that's when we plant seeds for flourishing. I wonder where in your life that you are with withdrawing what 
What are the things that are just too hard to face so you don't? Or perhaps you're suffering, enduring what you have to because, well, there's not really any option. The royal story that we saw in the Psalms tells us that God is with us. King Jesus went through the darkest valley and will walk you through it. He endured the cross, confident in the Father's love for him, that this could never be taken from him. And this unfailing love cannot be taken from us either. We can draw on his strength by his Holy Spirit to receive comfort. Or perhaps, this is, well, for me, I found more challenging. What or where in my life am I the exploiter? Where am I enjoying my authority without regard for others? One thing I've been challenged to do and I encourage you to do is ask God to show you your insecurities, your insecurities that stop you from sharing your powers with others and stops you from putting your strengths at other people's disposal. King Jesus had the strength to become the slave of all since he was confident his father was always with him as he is with us by his spirit. So the second implication of Jesus being our king is that even though we live subject to other kings, earthly authorities, they are subject to King Jesus themselves. No matter what the government does, no matter Uh, what evil is done by those in power, Jesus remains Lord of all. He will call all kings to account and he restrains them from doing their worst. Of course, he hears our prayers so we can call on him to intervene, to guide those in authority in wisdom and compassion, to raise up godly leaders, to bring security, justice and mercy in our nation now and to show us how we can use our power to contribute to peace and prosperity, the peace and prosperity of our city, nation, and the world. What does this look like? Well, years ago, when I was living in a country that had an autocratic government, God taught me and the community I was in how how to serve in that, where we couldn't really affect the big picture. He taught us to advance Jesus' rule by focusing on serving those around us. We couldn't stop those in power confiscating land, but we could help those who were thrown off their land find places to live. We couldn't prevent creditors taking advantage of those in poverty, but we could help those in debt find secure income. We couldn't end the exploitation in factories and red light districts, but we could work with the authorities to end the worst of the abuses and to help those looking 
for better employment, get better jobs. Instead of getting incredibly frustrated with all we couldn't do, we were shown how we could use our power in what seemed to us small ways, but still made a big difference in bringing Jesus' rule in the community around us. So let me finish uh, with this. This year, let's see how Inner West can advance Jesus' rule in our neighbourhood, even though we're subject to different authorities. How can we use the power that we're given to make a difference to our neighbours? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your son is king, the king of kings, that he rules over all and that we have a hotline to him. I pray that we would not be scared or fearful of power and that we would not be so attracted to it that we would lose sight of who you have called us to be. I pray that you would uh, give us your spirit to live out uh, your rule in your world. In Jesus' name, amen.